We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. Well, good morning. Why don't you grab a seat? Welcome, welcome to Light Church. Um, I know most of the faces here, but um, um, if it's your first time here, maybe a couple of th- couple of things. Um, if you signed in, thank you for signing in. If you haven't yet, on during the break, maybe if you can scan in the sign in so we can fulfil our COVID requirements. If you need the toilets to my left down the corridor, you'll find them down there. Coffee on the right. So. Uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to have a couple of sessions, a session and then a break, um, where you can maybe have a look at the resource table and Shane will, uh, maybe at the start of the second session, you can share a little bit about where that all goes to, uh, Shane. And um, then we're having one session tonight at 7pm. Now after today's session, you'll want to invite someone to that, and if you can get back tonight, it'll It'll be a, a, a great evening as well. Um, there's no charge for this, um, and uh, Shane doesn't come with any requirements, but tonight we will take an offering up just to sow into his ministry as, as well. Um, Shane's become a, a great once-a-year friend um, for our church and many churches around Australia, actually. And if you don't know who Shane is, if this is your first time with him... Um, just uh, what Shane has done for me is to help look at the word from different perspectives. Um, and I think we, should, we all need to do that. We need to shake our foundations and see what's real and always see the new thing that God wants to show us, the next thing that God wants to show us. And he's helped me um, do that for me personally from his background with degrees in psychology and what else, theology... Aerobics, no, My, um, studied under, a, a, well, sorry, mentored by a, a Jewish rabbi as well. So he has such an, a unique perspective. And uh, you're going to be blessed today. Let's give him a great hand. Uh, our friend Shane. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's so good. Th- thanks for coming out on a Thursday morning. And so... Um, for, for those of you who have less anxiety, if you know what's coming, um, here's what's going to happen. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes, um, and then we're going to have a break and get some snacks and coffees or whatever, water in, water out. Um, in that break, I do have a resource table set up there. Um, as always, not as always, it's not as big. I only brought the new stuff I've done in the last 18 months, right? Because I want to be a good citizen and not take up a whole lot of space when there's space problems. So uh, there's, a, there's a brand new series on the book of Revelation out there. I got so embarrassed by the stuff I was seeing Christians say on the internet about Revelation. It was just terrible. So I decided to put a better narrative out there. Um, also, I did a series on faith and uncertainty. It's seven sessions long. Um, and then in the COVID lockdowns, 
pastors from everywhere were asking me to come onto their online platforms and do Q&A because dialogues play longer than monologues, right? And so, um, and so you could preach a sermon in a monologue and people would click off in about five minutes. But if you do the same content in the form of a dialogue, people were engaged the whole time. And so, um, and so by the time we were done with that, we had 12 hours worth of Q&A of me being interviewed by really intelligent people like Nathan Bean and Dustin Bell and Rob Buckingham and Byron Graham, people like this. And so, um, and so we had an editor put it together by topics. You can just click on the topic you're interested in and it's me and a pretty smart person dialoguing about that. That's out there as well. And we also have a, a brand new one just was released a week ago called Mastering the Art of Living. And so um, you could pick that up. As always, we give 100% of that away. We have three homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities. And then we have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. So um, that's what we do with all of that. So then we'll come back and have a second session um, and then tonight will be a more traditional sort of sermon. So tonight I'll, 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 I'll take on the form of, like if you're, if you, this is my sixth year coming to Edithburg, by the way, six, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, and now 21, all right? So this is my sixth year coming. So there's, if you're familiar um, with my sort of style and what I do, and hello. <laughs> Um, you can, uh, you'll, you'll know that what, I, what I'll end up doing tonight is, is a more, um, it's something that you'll be able to invite your friends to, okay? So you can come on tonight and it'll be very meaningful. Jesus will get bigger. The cross will work better. The resurrection will be central. Scriptures will get bigger, not smaller. But for this morning, you chose to come out on a morning. So I want to teach something a bit deeper, all right? So I want to talk about Christ, Right? I want to talk about the, the, the theological word is Christology, right? It's the study of Christ or the nature of Christ. And so what I have come convinced to be that, uh, that the Pentecostal church is in desperate need of a more profound Christology, a more profound way of talking about Christ. And here's what I mean by this, okay? Let me explain why. As I've traveled the whole world, this has happened to me more than a thousand times, but less than 10,000 times, okay? And, that, and here's the scenario. 58-year-old pastor says to me, would you please talk to my 28-year-old children? They're leaving Christianity, but they like you. So we've asked them to hold off on leaving Christianity till they talk to you, and they've agreed to talk to you. So would you have a coffee or lunch with my 28-year-old children who are leaving Christianity, right? And I'm panicking about this because I've pastored for 35 years. I've raised them to be Christians, but they don't want to be Christians anymore. And it's becoming tensionous. Would you have this conversation with them? And I, of course, I'd, I'll do that. And this is how the conversation normally goes. There's some buzzwords like we're deconstructing our faith, right? Which sometimes can be used healthily. In, in another way, though, it can actually mean we're demolishing the whole thing, right? And so sometimes people say deconstruction, but what they mean is and what gets heard is we're demolishing it, right? And then if I ask them, what do you mean by that? People that age, they don't really have language for this. So they'll just say, we just think all of Christianity is crap. It's just all crap, right? And then I won't let them do that, right? Because you can't say something is all nonsense. It's an untenable conversation. So nothing is all nonsense. Like if you have stress with your wife and you go, she's just all nonsense. Well, that's not tenable, right? You can't say, if you have stress with your husband, you go, he's just all nonsense. We can't, we have to define what is nonsense and what isn't nonsense. So here's what I would do. 
I'd put two bowls on the table. And I would say, there's no judgment. You can say what you like. There's no judgment. Bowl number one is the nonsense bowl. This is the part of Christianity that is absolute nonsense. Bowl number two is the not nonsense bowl. All right? So we're going to have to, you can't say it's all nonsense. And then I just on purpose name 15 things that can't be nonsense. Like taking care of the poor. Clothing the naked. Restoring dignity to the broken. Bringing medicine to people who don't have medicine. Right? J Jesus being the fullness of God. Like these sorts of things, right? That he actually died on a cross. And you know what I found? Is none of, the, none of those young people that were deconstructing their faith had any problem with any of those things. So, when we, so what I did is I purposely filled the non-nonsense bowl with obviously non-nonsense. And I just went, wait a minute, we just named 15 things that isn't nonsense, and yet you just called it all nonsense. Can you help me understand what exactly is nonsense? And then I make them be specific, because once you can be specific and you can name something, then you can manage it with a conversation, right? And what I found was, was that what they were naming actually is nonsense and actually should be rethought. And it's actually our fault because we're the people controlling the narrative around these things. And I don't think anybody, in, I don't think anybody intends to speak of Christ in an uncompelling way, right? Like nobody in here would intend, I'm gonna on purpose speak of Christ in the most uncompelling way humanly possible so that young people don't buy. I, I, I'm gonna on purpose use language that young people will find it harder to follow Jesus than easier, right? No one, no one's doing that. But what I found was is that we do that all the time unintentionally. And these were the three things, over a thousand hours of these conversations, these are the three things that always come up. Original sin, the idea that people are born basically wicked and God is against them until they do a certain ritual and then God's basic disposition changes towards them. They're not buying that. And here's why they're not buying it. It's nonsense. And here's another reason why they're not buying it. They had a kid. And what they did is they held their six-week-old baby and they looked at it in its eyes and they could not come to the conclusion that this baby is wicked and needs to fundamentally do a ritual before God will love this kid, right? They can't do that, right? And then they're having cognitive dissonance on how their parents ever thought that. Because at some point their parents held them and went, you're basically evil, right? And so what they realized is, is that the gospel is not Jesus coming to fix our badness, but rather Jesus coming to invite us back to embrace original goodness, how God originally intended us to be. That the Bible actually starts in Genesis 1 instead of Genesis 3, okay? So you have that. The second thing they can't buy is penal substitution, okay? So penal substitution is an atonement theory that is absolute nonsense, right? And that is the idea that God could not forgive somebody without torturing someone else, right? And, and, and that's, that's nonsensical in, in every... It, it, let me see if I can illustrate this fairly well. Let, let's say I hurt Darren, right? And I'm going to pick Darren out because he's the one I know. So let's, let's say I hurt Darren or Carrie, right? And I say, listen, guys, I've hurt you really bad. And um, I, didn't, I didn't mean to. Seriously, not intentional. That doesn't matter. What matters is I hurt you. W would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me for hurting you? And Darren says, oh, Shane, goodness me. Of course, you're totally forgiven. It'll never come up again. But I'm going to go home and I'm going to give Tom the butt whooping of his life. I'd go, well, no, no, don't, don't hurt Tom. Why would you hurt Tom? Tom's a good guy. Don't hurt, 
don't hurt Tom to forgive me. Just forgive me for free. And Darren goes, I wish I could, but I can't. If I, could, if I forgive you for free, somebody has to give a pound of flesh. And unfortunately, it's going to be Tom. And it's not going to be like a small butt whooping either. It's going to be like the butt whooping. He's never going to be beaten as bad as I'm going to beat him when I get home so that I can forgive you. Now, if Darren actually did that, what would that make Darren? A, a, the word is a psychopath, right? That would make Darren a psychopath. Let's call that what it is. But unfortunately, that's sometimes how Christians speak of God. They'll say things like, you know what? God couldn't forgive, Jesus. God couldn't forgive you without hurting Jesus. Like my Sunday school teacher told me at seven, I'm seven, and I want to be fair to her. She was volunteering to teach people, that, little kids, that God loved them. I honor her, right? But it was the language she used. It was, she told me at seven, Shane, isn't it so good that God loved you enough to kill Jesus for you? God killed Jesus? For me? I think even at seven, I was going, couldn't he just let it go? Like he's God. Surely he could just let it go, right? And I go, no, no. Shane, I love you. I do. I love you a lot. But I wouldn't kill my kid for you. But God loves you so much, he killed his own kid for you. That's how much God loves you. And I'm thinking, so God who commands us to forgive people for free, turns out he can't forgive without hurting somebody. That image is not helping us right? That is not a compelling way to talk about what Jesus did on the cross, is that God was some sort of co-conspirator of, of what happened on the cross. That is just absolute nonsense and belongs in the nonsense box. Now, why, why do under 30s have a problem with that? Because they had a kid. And they go, I, how could we ever frame this thing that way? The third thing they cannot cope with is eternal conscious torment. And what I mean by that is, is that hell is defined as God actively getting a pound of flesh for 50 billion years for a decision that somebody might have failed to make just because they didn't know not to make it. 50 billion years of active torture, right? They're not buying that, right? And so the question is, is should they buy it? And if these things have become a hurdle to people following Christ, then why do we continue to beat that drum? And I can tell you, that leaders of the church at the highest level of every denomination I speak for is ready to speak of this in a better way. The thing is, is we lack language. And so my attempt this morning is to give us some language around this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this for two sessions, and then we're going to have a small Q&A around it, okay? So that, because I want us to be able to, in, in a room this size, we can discuss these things, okay? So if you think of a good question, jot it down, right? And at the end... We're going to have a moment for that. But let me, let me define what a good question is. A good question must end with a question mark or it's just your opinion and that's sort of boring, okay? That's one. In other words, we want something that invigorates conversation. That's one. Two, it needs to be mutually edifying, right? Like you, you need to think, I think the whole room would benefit from this, all right? Like I think that would be, that would be good. And three, it needs to be non-antagonistic, right? Because we're under a biblical mandate to do all things without grumbling or disputing with one another, right? Like, this is not about arguing. This is about coming up with exploring, exploring more meaningful language around this. So, um, if you could bring that first slide up for me. Um, this is our supplemental reading. There's a, a book called A More Christ-Like God by Dr. Brad Jerzak, okay? 
Um, if you want to read, I can't recommend this book highly enough. Um, let, me, let me give you a backstory here. Uh, Dr. Brad Jerzak was a Pentecostal pastor for 20 years, and he left it to become an Eastern Orthodox uh, scholar, priest, academic. He's the dean of St. Stephen University. Um, the Eastern, if, you're, if that is confusing, the Eastern Orthodox are the, when we say the early church, we're talking about the East, what is the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? So the, the church originally was one church at two headquarters, Constantinople and Rome. Um, in 1054, there was a great schism. It was an Eastern Reformation. That Eastern Reformation became what is now known the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they, they were the Eastern Reformation. 500 years after that, there was the Western Reformation, which is where all of our stuff is based on, right? But they, they are fully devoted followers of Jesus, and they were the early church theologians, people like Athanasius, Ignatius, people like that. Now, Dr. Brad, the, the gold standard Christology that's ever been written was written by Athanasius in the late 200s. Um, it's such a gold standard Christology that um, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Duke Divinity School, Wheaton, Dallas Theological Seminary, Fuller, and Planet Shakers Bible College uses Athanasius's Christology. Now, Dr. Brad Jerzak wrote a 11th grade version of that called a more christ-like god and it is easy to read and brilliant um next slide so this is a hymn a hymn that was being sung by first century christians before the gospels were written so the gospel was written around 70 um, AD. Paul was writing this around 55, and it was already in circulation being written. And this is Paul talking about the meaning of Christ or the nature of Christ to the Philippians. Have this mind amongst yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, the theological term for that is kenosis. Kenosis is when you intentionally humble yourself for the benefit of somebody else. It's it's laying down your rights, laying down your liberty, laying down your power for the sake of somebody else. This is why we have to be careful with how we talk about God. Because we could say God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth, but we're actually talking about a projection of something pagan, right? Because words matter less than how we picture words functioning, right? So if we say, for instance, let me give you a couple examples of this, all right? Um, I'm going to resist the urge to be in a hurry because there's no need, all right? So um, God is all-powerful. True or not true? True. But that's not the question. The question is, is what imagination does that invoke when we say God is all-powerful, right? So if we say God is all-powerful, but we, and so we picture an existent man sitting on a throne above things, choosing where to act and where not to act, is that the God revealed in Christ? No, it's not. The God revealed in Christ is an all-powerful God who actually chose to lay that power down in order to co-suffer with the human story. That's two different things. So if I was to say, God is freedom, is that true? Yes, it is. But, but the God revealed in Christ is that his liberty is always submitted to the higher ethic of love. That's how it functions best, right? Or, or, or here's one. Jesus died for you. Is that true? Yes, very true, very true. Jesus died for you is incredibly true. But Jesus died for you is fundamentally different than God killed Jesus for you. 
right? That is two different things. That God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself is a fundamentally better way to say it than God had to kill Jesus in order to forgive you, right? And so there's a way that we can say things that are true, but the imagination that it invokes is actually a pagan sort of imagination. So what Paul's pointing out here is actually the God revealed in Christ. And here's Christianity 101 from the beginning is that the ultimate way to see God is through a Christ-like lens. That actually, even if you can find a verse that says something else, the ultimate way to see God is through the Christ-like lens. And what do we find in a Christ-like lens? That God humbled himself. He kenosised. He, he is kenotic. I'll say it this way. He's kenotic, cruciform, and pure love. And what does that mean? It means he's a God that laid his power down, humbled himself, that God, the God revealed in Christ, is ultimately a God willing to engage the broken story of humanity in order to make a better story, not sit above it to judge it, criticize it, or banish it right? It's, it's not that God, and you actually you see this in creation, that God looks at the mess of creation, the chaos, the water, and he doesn't say, I'm too holy to get my hand involved in that. Like, this is the problem with language like, God's too holy to be in the presence of sin. I know what you mean, but that is just empirically and obviously and observably not true. It's, it's almost like all God does is engage sin. All he does is get involved in sinful stories. It's almost like God is too holy not to engage the story, and that when he engages the story, he doesn't banish it or judge it or criticize it. He engages it in order to make a better narrative. That's what he does in Genesis 1. That's what the God revealed in Christ does with the world. He engages the broken story of the world, not to throw away the broken picture of the world, but to engage the story in order to fix the picture. It's, it's, it's that. And he does that through something called kenosis. He emptied himself by being taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. When Paul wrote that, that word cross was a swear word. He actually uses a swear word in this letter. Like when they read this in church, it had been like, oh, because the word cross in the Roman Empire meant you were cursed by God. It was like, it would be like saying that a God was damning you. It would be that sort of thing. Like to be cursed, it'd be that, that Caesar, the God in flesh, has cursed you by hanging you on a tree. And so, and so Paul's making a really good point. Like, this is how far God humbled himself. The God revealed in Christ humbled himself to the point where he was obedient to the point of death. Oh, how far is that? Oh, not just any death, death on a cross. It would have been like, oh, man. Next slide. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord instead of Caesar to the glory of God the Father. It sounds like everybody. Next, next slide. This is 1 John chapter 4. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So what if the purpose of Christ was not to be punished by God instead of you, but rather to reveal the love of God to the world? That is a fundamentally different image that we need to grasp, correct? Like, you're, you could still say it the same way. Jesus died for you. But one, day, one way it sounds like God hurt Jesus instead of you. Another way it sounds like God was in Christ revealing to you how much he loved you. Those are, you're, it, it's, it is a fundamental, it's the same exact sentence with a fundamentally different imagination. Can you see why the one imagination is better than the other, for, especially the under 30s? 
Like, I don't know, I don't know, God does what he does in different generations. My dad's generation somehow bought the fact that God tortured Jesus for him. And, that, and you know what? They said yes and amen. But I'm telling you, that has become, that imagery, not the sentence. The sentence is true. Jesus died for you. But the imagery has become a hurdle. And what we find is, is that that imagery is nowhere in the early church writings. So no, it doesn't exist in those writings. Let, let's, let's say it a couple different ways. Next slide. So a couple things. One, God does not change. God has never changed. And God is perfectly revealed in Christ. But in the Bible, what you find is, is that although God doesn't change, what people thought God was changed. They kept getting better ideas around, around what God was. Like Abraham's big idea was, let's kill animals instead of kids, right? Can I get an amen? That's a good idea, right? That's a really good plan, right? Is that, a, is that a word from God? Yes. Is that the final word of God? No. The final word of God is the risen Christ, but that was a good leap in the right direction, right? Moses' big idea was instead of killing infinite animals, let's just kill one animal per family per year, right? That's good, right? Right? Is that a God idea? You better believe it is. Is that the final word? No, the final word. And then Micah comes along and Micah says something that to us is obvious, but in his day it was revolutionary. He's like, what kind of God delights when you kill a bird? What kind of God is grumpy and then you kill a goat and now he feels better? That's weird. That is ridiculous. What do we need to do? We just need to do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with God. Of course, that was like revolutionary. Is that, is, is that a word from God? Yes. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ. So what we find in the Bible is we don't find a static record of God. We find a static record of what people thought God was. It, but it, the, the, that record is dynamic, progressive, and moving to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Right? So let, let's say it this way. Next slide. So a couple of thoughts to get our conversations going today. Right? One, Christ did not come to change the Father or to appease the wrath of an angry judge, but to reveal the Father to the world. That's a better way to say it. That God did, Christ did not come to change the Father. Or it, like, because like, there's an imagery, and, and I, actually, I actually heard a sermon this week from a pastor in Australia that said God's anger was coming at us like a meteor, and Jesus stood in front of it and took the blow for us. That was his metaphor in his message last week. I'm not mad at him. I'm just saying the under 30s go, why do we want to spend eternity with a God that we need to be saved from how angry he is at us by him hurting someone else? That doesn't make sense. But the good news is actually better than that. That Christ did not come to appease the wrath of an angry judge, but to reveal the love of the Father to the world. That is a fundamentally different thing. And I want to be clear. I don't think any person, including the guy I listen to, I don't think any person intends to paint that kind of image. It's just those images get stuck in our head. Let's say it this way. God is like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We did not know that, <laughs> but now we do. That in the Bible, that's the story. That God has always been like Jesus from the beginning. In the New Testament, once they saw the God revealed in Christ on the cross, they drew all kinds of conclusions like, oh my goodness. The entire first chapter of 1 John is, oh my goodness. 
that all these things have been true since the beginning, but now we have seen it with our own two eyes to prove it to us. The writer of Hebrews is going, oh my goodness, God was like Jesus all along. First Peter, oh, that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality on the cross. Jesus simply showed us what God was always like. This is a better plan. Otherwise, the story is that God is infinitely less grumpy now that he's hurt somebody. <laughs> and thank goodness it wasn't you. It was his own son. Like that does not make any sense. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Paul said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's not the father that needed to be reconciled to the world. It's the world that needed to be reconciled to the father. Jesus perfectly revealing the heart of the father confronts the sin of the world this way. I forgive you. That the God revealed in Christ confronts sin with forgiveness. And what better way to confront sin than with uber grace? That you don't confront greed with fighting. You confront greed with uber generosity. And uber generosity confronts the greed in the heart of the other person. Like, it's, it's, it is unprofound to say that God just ignores our sin. That's, that's unprofound. Like, and I've heard it said that way. Like, oh, he just acts like you never did anything. Uh... No, that's actually far less profound than, no, you did it, and I'm not ignoring it. I'm going to acknowledge that you did it and then not hold it against you. That is much more profound than pretending like nothing ever happened, and it's confronting. Like, I know you did it. I know your intent was bad, but I'm not going to hold it against you. That is more profound than we're just going to pretend it didn't happen. And next slide. Even when we turn away from God, He's always there confronting us with his love. God is always toward us, always for us. He comes not as a condemning judge, but a great physician. Once again, images matter, images matter more than the words. If we see sin as something that must be punished, that's problematic. If we see sin as a, a condition that needs to be healed, that's a whole nother thing. And here's a great example of this, right? If you want the best example I could think of of words mattering less than how we picture words functioning, I'm going to say something. I'm not tricking you. I'm going to say something that is true. But then I want to talk about the images underneath it, okay? Here's the truth. If I was to say, Jesus is the judge, true or not? True. Like, we're all together on that. Jesus is the judge. Here's the problem. I promise I'm not tricking you, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to just point you out. When I say Jesus is the judge... What primary image comes to your mind? What, imagine, what picture comes? Yeah, exactly. So, so in that image, he's then an officer of the court. Correct? So in Australia, he'd be wearing a wig. And his job would be then to declare someone, what, guilty or not guilty. So if I say Jesus is the judge... now. To not point my friend here out, how many of us had the sim same similar image? Can we all agree that Jesus is the judge immediately invokes judicial officer image, right? Is that how Jewish people use the word judge? No. The, 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 the word judge in Hebrew is shofet, which is defender. It's someone anointed by God to set you free from whatever's oppressing you. Heck, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to that use of the word judge. It's called the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, are these judicial officers? 
No, they're not. Who are they? They are people anointed by God to set people free from whatever is oppressing them. See, here's the problem. When we say Jesus is the judge and we mean a judicial officer and then we go, come on, get close to Jesus. Who wants to get close to a court official? You don't want to be in court even if you're innocent. I'm telling you, I know someone personally who was falsely accused of a crime and was fully exonerated, acquitted, and the accuser was charged with perjury. I know this person incredibly personally. And he knew he was innocent, and I knew he was innocent, and the lawyer knew he was innocent, and eventually the judge figured out he was innocent. But still, that's a nerve-wracking experience, right? You don't want to get close to a judicial... Hey, Jesus is the ultimate, the big old court of heaven judicial officer. Now please, press in and get close to... Nobody wants to be in court, even if they're innocent. But what if we said Jesus is the judge... What we mean by that is he's the one anointed by God to defend you, to set you free, to take on whatever is oppressing you, even if it's death. He's in on the fight. That is much better. How do we get a primary image of Jesus being a judicial officer from the word judge? Well, because we're white. That's what white people do, is they superimpose Western thought on a very Eastern concept even though it's obvious that an entire book of the Bible, Judges, is dedicated to that concept of judgment. Let's say it this way. Jesus then is saving us or rescuing us from Satan, sin, and death. He's not saving us from God. God was in Christ saving us from Satan, sin, and death. And how do you save humanity? You take on its common enemy. And what's the common enemy of humanity? Death. Sin. Satan. See, this is a way we can say true things that create bad images. Like if I was to say, Jesus paid the price for your sin. True or not true? Absolutely true. The question is, but the problem is, is if I say Jesus paid the price, if the primary image is he paid God off, that God needed to be paid off. What? No, sin needed to be paid off. And what's the wages of sin? Death. So how do you pay off sin? You die. And then how do you defeat the common enemy of humanity? You rise again. How do you defeat death? You resurrect. This is the gospel. The gospel isn't God. Jesus is paying God off. The gospel is God was in Christ handling the whole thing by taking on the common enemy of man. Nothing brings people together like a common enemy. This is why once a year there'll be a pretty well done alien invasion movie. And what happens in an alien invasion? People put aside their petty differences to defeat the alien invader. It's like, you know what? The thing I didn't like about you, I'm coming to the conclusion it's probably not that important because there's a spaceship over the White House, right? We're going to have to take this on. Well, that's why COVID-19 united the world. It gave us a common enemy. How many wars have been started in the last year? None. Why? Not that important. It exposed the things we thought were important. It's like, wait a minute. Um, can we all take a break from bombing each other while we try to make sure we can breathe? Right? It's like, <laughs> this is like, and, and, what, and what did it take to do that? A germ. A virus. You know, somebody ate a pangolin. It's a bad plan, you know. Like, like, so so this, is, this, is what, this is what's happening. Jesus, can, can you see the subtle differences between... Jesus saved us from God 
instead of God was in Christ saving us from sin, Satan, and death. Like, this is just different. Ne ne next slide. God never turns away from humanity. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Jesus never said, I'm too holy to look on your sin. It's actually, I'm too holy not to engage the broken story in order to make a better narrative. Let's say it this way. The gospel is this. When we turn away, he turns toward us. When we run away, he confronts us with his love. When we murder God, he confronts us with his consent, his mercy, and his forgiveness. That kenosis went so far as to consent to allowing humans to murder him. Humans murdered Jesus, not God. And I want to admit this. This is a, it's a parable, okay? It's a fiction story. But Jesus told the story, so we should take it seriously. And remember, Jesus was confronting religious leaders who were plotting to kill him. And he said, you know how I think about you guys? I think about you guys like stewards who were entrusted with being in charge of the king's land. And the king keeps sending messengers back to see how his land's going. And y'all keep beating them up. You see, you send one and you beat him up. You send another and you beat him up. You send another and you beat him up. So finally, the king sends his son, knowing you will accept his son. But then you kill him too. So at least parabolically, Jesus reveals that God expected the world to accept his son. But then when they don't, what does God do? Well, the God revealed in Christ doesn't show his power by stopping it. He consents to human freedom and natural law and lets them murder him. And then engages even that broken story to make something beautiful. That's a more beautiful way to talk about God. Next slide. Even if we limit our inquiry to the nature of God to the Bible, we'll find a Rorschach test. So people go, oh, Shane, let's just stick with the word here. These are funny sounding, these are funny sounding sentences. Let's just stick with the word here, right? Okay. Even if we limit our exploration of the nature of God to the Bible, what we find is a Rorschach test, all right? So if you don't know what a Rorschach test, here's what a Rorschach test is. It's a random inkblot test that psychologists use to assess people who don't know what their problem is, okay? So what happens is, is you come to me and you say, I don't know what's wrong with me. And I go, okay, let's do a little assessment here. Have you had any tragedies happen? Has a child died? Has, have you been given horrible news? Have you been fired? Did you get married? Did you get divorced? Did one of your children get married? So you, you take them through a basic sort of life stressor test. And then if you come to the end of that and it's like, well, nothing there, what you do is you give them a random inkblot test. You go, all right, look at the, and these, these pictures literally mean nothing. But then if they see the same thing in each picture, it indicates there's something going on. So if, if you see an abusive father in every picture, it's like chances are you've got a problem with your dad. Or if you see sex in every picture, it's like, well, chances are you, you have a problem with sexuality, right? So the Bible's like that. Like, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If you want to find a God of peace, can you find him? Can you find verses for that? Sure. What about a God of war? Sure. If you need a compassionate God, can you find verses for that? Yeah. What about a vindictive one? Well, you can find a few. Yep. What about an egalitarian one? Oh, definitely. An ethnocentric one. You know, a God that loves a certain race of people more than everybody else. Can you find, which ironically, the scriptures were written by the people who said God loves us more than everybody else. Yeah, just, just passe. Um, 
Or can you, find, can you find a God that demands animal sacrifice? Sure you can. Leviticus, it's everywhere. Can you find a verse that says that's a dumb idea? Yeah, the whole book of Micah in Hebrews, right? Can you, find a, can you find a God that is for stoning adulterers? Yes, you can. But the God revealed in Christ, does he stone adulterers? No, he doesn't. He lets them off the hook. Why? Because the God revealed in Christ is the ultimate way to see God. And the God revealed in Christ loves people more than whatever rule they broke. And he has called his followers to fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about singular verses in it. I love the way um, Archbishop Lazar Lahalo. Archbishop Lazar Lahalo. That's a, that's, you, you try to say that. Archbishop Lazar Lahalo, he says that how you read the Bible tells me more about you than God. And that's so true. Like if I hear, if I see you read something and I say, how do you read it? The way you interpret that scripture tells me more about what you think about God than what God is. And that, and that, that, that has become this projection. Let's say it this way. Next slide. What if God is like Jesus? Let's, and I don't want to use that as a platitude. Like if I was to say God is ultimate revealed in Christ. I'm in a Christian church. It's like, yes, amen. But let's stop and think about that for a second. What if God is actually like Jesus? That would be, it, well, let me ask you this. Is there anything we believe about God that you can't find exhibited in the risen Christ? And that I think all of us would have something that we actually have this image of God that's not Christ-like. Or, or, or what if Jesus is the message of God? What if Jesus is the full and faithful witness to how God is to be understood? This is the really confronting one. What if God is actually like Jesus on the cross? One who's willing to consent to human freedom and natural law. Why? Why would you do that? Well, isn't your whole life a consenting to human freedom and natural law? Of course it is. Like, anybody here ever tried to control someone and failed? So, so how, much, how, how much pain is in this room now, right now, if you think about your life, how much pain have you experienced because somebody made a decision that hurt you and you couldn't control it? Well, how else does God engage the broken story of humanity except for to do the same thing and submit himself to human freedom and natural law, right? It, what if God is like Jesus? What if the cross is God's way in Christ to say, I understand? Whatever it is, I, I understand. Let's say this way. Next slide. This is 1 John 2. At the same time, it's a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, that light, where, where, do, you, where do you find that, the first mention of the word light at creation? In other words, what you saw at creation is now being managed like this. It, Jesus is not inaugurating a new reality. He's showing us what God was always like. Next slide. See, we all read the Bible through our bias and upbringing experience. Like, there's two really smart guys, one named Greg Boyd and one named John Piper. I've actually met John Piper. He's an amazing guy. Like, has forgotten more about what he's done for God than I'll ever do. Never met Greg Boyd, but he's equally amazing. Wrote one of the best books I've ever read in my life, Myth of a Christian Nation. Uh, wrote Repenting of Religion. Wrote the only book I've ever read by a Harvard-educated man on the role of imagination in prayer. Um, that's more of an Eastern thought. He's a Western guy who goes, no, no, no. The pictures we use in prayer are very important. Anyway, but they read, they read the same scripture and interpret it two completely different ways. And they're both fully devoted followers of Jesus. Why? Because it's just in us to repurpose things that God said through our own lens and for our own purpose. Let me show you an example of this from the scripture itself. Next slide. 
So this is a, an account from Numbers. Um, and just to set it up, this is the famous story of the grumblers getting bitten by snakes. So if you can, if you can picture the essentially Moses does all this work to get these people out of slavery and then these people start grumbling and if you're Moses how do you feel about this you're irritated this is irritating right you've just got you out of slavery and you're complaining about how bland the food tastes and and Moses has had enough and, and Moses just is sick of the grumbling people and it just so happens some snakes come out and bite the people right now who does Moses think did that God, he's like, he's like, but God didn't do it. It's, but it's reasonable to think, it's reasonable for Moses to think that. And let's just be honest, it's in us to think that way. Like, if somebody came in here right now and robbed us all, had a gun, I don't know how you get a gun in Australia, but he's got one, right? So he comes in, he says, okay, everybody, wallets, purses in that bucket, nobody move, drop your phones, right? I'm like, shoot, right? So we give our wallets and all this. He's a paranoid sort of a maniac. And so he says, nobody move till I'm gone. And he's so paranoid, he sort of backs off into the road and an 18-wheeler milk truck runs him over, right? Somebody in here would go, that's right, God got him, right? But God didn't get him. You just can't, you can't not look and walk in the road, right? And so these people grumble and these snakes, it just so happens some snakes come out and start biting folks. And Moses is so irritated, he projects his irritation onto God, right? He goes, that's right, God got you. God got you. But, but what happens is, is the story goes on, and when it comes to find out, Moses actually asks God what to do, and God says, heal them. That God is a life giver, not a death dealer, right? He says, put a snake on a pole, and if anyone looks at it, they'll get healed. And what was the cost of it? For free. So when, when Moses actually inquires of God, he finds out that God is in the healing business and wants to do so for free without charging anybody or punishment right? It's like unbelievable. Here's what happens. From Mount Hor, they set about on the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And, um, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the wilderness to die here? For there's no food and no water. Oh, and watch how quick they lie. And we loathe this worthless food. So which is it? Is it no food or water, or you just don't like the food? Right? Like, it's right there in the story. Like, like you said there's no food and no water. Actually, is, it, is there no food, or is it you just don't like it? Right? Watch this. Next slide. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. The Lord sent it. <laughs> of course he did. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and, and they bit the people. And the people, many died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, so he'll take away the serpents. So, so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten... When he sees it, shall live. So when God actually reveals his character, it's like, let's heal people for free here. Like, this is not about payment or punishment. I just want to heal people, right? So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anybody, in other words, God didn't take the serpents away because he didn't bring them in the first place. He engaged the horrible story and made the story better, right? They'll look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, that's a good story, isn't it? You find that God is a, 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 a life giver for free. But then let me show you something that happened in the book of Kings. Next slide. The second Kings 18. This is talking about an eight-year-old king named Josiah who is trying to tear down things of idols and things like this. Watch what he says. And he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. That's a good move. 
But then this is strange. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Hang on. Isn't that what God told Moses to do, was to make a bronze serpent? I mean, everybody looks at it, gets healed, right? Watch. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So here's what they did. They took the bronze serpent Moses made, which was giving healing for free. They renamed it Nehushtan and started charging people for the healing it was bringing. It's just in us to repurpose something God's doing to fit our own way. And I think that's true with the way we talk about Christ. And it shouldn't be. Next slide. Are the people in our lives rejecting Christ? Or are they rejecting the image of Christ we're presenting? That's, too, that, that's the question. That's the question. And I got to tell you, the, the ACC has asked me to start teaching this all over the regions in Queensland and because we're hungry for a better sort of... It's not different language in the sense of saying untrue things. It's a way to say true things that doesn't invoke a horrible image. Like Jesus died for you is God was in Christ reconciling everything by taking on your common enemy as the judge. Judge being someone anointed by God to take on what's oppressing you, right? That Jesus wasn't paying God off. He was paying sin off. And how do you pay sin off? You die. And how do you defeat death? You resurrect. This is a good story. But this penal stuff doesn't work. M most people don't reject Jesus. They reject the image of Jesus presented to them. And that's two different things. The question is, are we presenting the right image of God? A Christ-like image of God. Is the culprit of religion an unchrist-like projection of what God is? We're saying Christ, but we actually just mean ourselves with a giant megaphone. It's, 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 a, it's, it's what we think God is, and it's, it's a in that sense, God becomes a projection instead of a projectile, which is a better way to say it. But one of my favorite atheists is a guy named Bill Maher. And Bill Maher is a center-left political commentator. Um, he, uh, um, he calls out the far left for being sort of lunatics, and he calls out the far right for definitely being lunatics. And he, he's, sort of, um, he's sort of catty and sarcastic, and he's a clever comedian. He's also Ivy League educated, really, really smart. Um, and I listen to him twice a month, um, because I want to hear the other side of the story. I want to be able to hear other people out who have different ideas than me. And as an atheist, he holds up a mirror to how Christians sound to him. And like he did something the other day where he played a video of a pastor quoting Revelation 13 as if it was something that's going to happen in the future and literal. And he goes, see, all Christians believe that. And everything in me wanted to go, no, they don't. I do not believe that locust-wearing body armor is literal. It is theopoetic, apocalyptic, poetic genre. Like, what? But it helps me to see how people think. Now, I want to I read a quote that Bill Maher was talking about why he's not a Christian. And I want you to pay attention. I, I've taken out all the obscenities, right? Because he doesn't mind using them. I've taken out all the obscenities. Um, and I want you to ask the question, has Bill Maher rejected Christ? Or has he rejected an unchristlike image that was presented to him? Um, I'm going to read this word for word, and I'm going to do it in a southern accent because it makes it better. Okay, next slide. 
If you're a Christian that supports killing your enemy and torture, you have to come up with a new name for yourself. Capping thy enemy is not exactly what Jesus would do. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have been lawyering the Bible to try to figure out how love thy neighbor can mean hate thy neighbor. Martin Luther King Jr. gets to call himself a Christian because he actually practiced loving his enemies. Next slide. And Gandhi was so Christian, he was a Hindu. If you don't know what he's referring to there, Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every day and tried to live it. That's what he was. He's trying to live like Jesus. But if you're endorsing revenge, torture, or war, you can't say that you're a follower of the guy that explicitly said love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. To not follow that part is like joining Greenpeace and hating whales. There's interpreting, and then there's just ignoring. It's just ignoring if you're for torture, as are more evangelical Christians than any other religion. You're supposed to look at the figure of Christ on the cross and think, how can a man suffer like that and still love and forgive? I'm not a Christian, just like most Christians. If you ignore every single thing Jesus commanded you to do, you're not a Christian. You're auditing. You're not a Christ follower. You're fans. And if you believe the earth was given to you to kick butt while gloating, you're not a Christian. You're a Texan. Now, that if you're listening to what he's saying there, he's not rejecting Jesus. What he has rejected is some unchristlike image of God. The culprit is the unchristlike image of God. Is the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit like? Well, he's like Jesus. Where do we see what Jesus is like? On the cross. What's the Father like? Well, like Jesus. Otherwise, you have this sort of diabolical good cop, bad cop behavior control. What is that? No, 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 no. Next slide. What if the cruciform Christ is the ultimate way to see God? It would mean that power best functions in weakness, servanthood, and self-emptying love. Next slide. This is 1 Corinthians 1. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. I love that, the, the, the difference. That Jews want a miraculous show of power to prove somebody's God. Greeks just want to understand how the world works, right? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because he, if he actually is God, he's supposed to get himself off the cross and show power, a sign, right? But also to the Gentiles. It's folly to the Gentiles. Why? Because the world, you're, if you're actually powerful, you're supposed to act like it, right? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the, meek, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, for Paul to see God ultimately revealed as Christ on the cross is the only way the world makes sense. Next slide. What if what we need is a more Christ-like image of God? So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break, because that was 57 minutes. I hope you weren't bored. And that, that went fast. Um, we're going to take a break now, and, but we're going to come back and I'm going, to ask the, I'm going to try to answer the question that would be on everybody's mind. And that is, I hear you, sounds good, but there's an awful lot in the Bible about the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, in Romans 5, it clearly says Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. What do we do with all that wrath? So we're going to take a break and come back and try to address that, okay? I'm going to let Darren tell you what to do now.